For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, visit the Center for Compassion Studies. Find out how Tucson youth are putting parks in focus. Retired NASA nurse Dee O'Hara shares stories of the beginning of the Apollo space program. A new essay from Adiba Nelson and some holiday traditions shared. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The University of Arizona's Center for Compassion Studies is the first of its kind in the Southwest. The center is designed to research the impact of compassion and to teach mindfulness to benefit both individuals and the community. Here's Ashley Freedy with a report. The nation needs more compassion and mindfulness, according to the UA Center for Compassion Studies. In 2014, the center's executive director, Leslie Lambert, began teaching cognitively-based compassion, a systematic method for gradually training the mind until compassion becomes a spontaneous response. She's had over 100 students, including transgender youth, Native American youth, behavioral health professionals, and adolescents in foster care. Lambert says there are three foundations of the training, a sense of being at home, connection and community, and mindful practices. And then we need a a way to be able to manage our experience and a way to manage our emotions and being able to identify what am I feeling and rather than just blindly reacting to it, not judge myself for having that feeling or feel like, you know, it's too scary and I need to like put it away. While some say apathy keeps them from involvement, Lambert says that it may be something else. There can be a sense of overwhelm. You know, we have these screens in our hands and on our desks and it's coming from everywhere. There's a really deep desire for people to step in and want to learn ways to manage that, to deepen their compassion and sustain their ability to feel compassion, you know, so that they're not overwhelmed by the suffering. Lambert says the current political climate has also created a sense of questioning of the right to be here. Particularly now, you know, I I feel like a lot of people do that the world is on fire. You know, we can't, as a society, we can't really afford to lose all of these folks to burnout. And so this is one like, small strategy, I think, to kind of help support people in a lot of different ways. For more information on the center's classes and workshops, visit their website at compassioncenter.arizona.edu. I'm Ashley Freedy, Arizona Spotlight. Ashley Freedy is a student in the University of Arizona School of Journalism. And during the fall semester of 2018, she was an intern at Arizona Public Media. Among the dreams that Stuart Udall had for the deserts of Arizona were to make them accessible to all and to help others realize the beauty they contain. Parks in Focus, a program that Udall started, is going strong today with the mission of helping youth who live in the city take what is often their first venture into the great outdoors. The program recruits kids from the Boys and Girls Clubs in Tucson and they're provided with cameras and the training to document what they find. I met novice photojournalists, 10-year-old Yohevid and 15-year-old Adolfo, plus Parks and Focus manager Brett Muter to find out more. Well, I describe it as a great opportunity I get from going to the Boys and Girls Club and keeping me busy throughout, like, weekends and breaks instead of, like, going out and, like, doing other things that I shouldn't be doing or, like, <laughs> staying at home. That's very honest of you. Instead of staying at home, too, being lazy. 
Well, when you go out in the field with Parks and Focus, what kind of places do you go to? Well, we've gone many places. We've gone to Grand Canyon, Sedona and Flagstaff, the Chiricahuas, and like places here too, like in Tucson and like Saguaro National Park and the Botanical Gardens. Now, you know it's Saguaro, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Why don't you say that part again? Saguaro National Park? Saguaro. You don't, Saguaro. Say the G, you don't say the G? Do you think that you would get out and see this much of Arizona any other way? Not really. I don't get other opportunities like this around, like, in school and stuff. You haven't? What about you? Where are some of the places that you've gone with Parks and Focus? Um, the Grand Canyon for my first time. I went to Flagstaff and Sedona, Saguaro National Park. So do you think that you would get out in nature and see this much of wild Arizona without the Parks and Focus program? No, not really, because me and my family hardly even go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So we usually are like a stay-at-home family. Have you camped overnight with the Parks and Focus group? Yes. Was camping a surprising experience for you in any way? Yes. How so? Um... When it's very quiet at night, we could hear, like, bugs chirping, and we could hear, like, owls and things moving. What about for you, Adolfo? What is something that is memorable or special about camping out under the stars? Mine, it would probably be, like, hearing the kids laughing, making jokes. <laughs> Brett, tell us a little bit about how the program works and how do you end up uh, helping these kids make the transition from maybe a real urban lifestyle to sampling some of the great Arizona outdoors. Parks and Focus has been partnering with the Boys and Girls Club for uh, 20 years now. And the mission of the program is pretty simple. It's connecting youth to the outdoors, to our public lands, through photography. We visit each of the six clubhouses here in Tucson, doing activities at the club, exploring what green space there might be around those clubhouses, uh, setting expectations for what they're going to see and do over the course of the program. Um, those club visits kind of progress into day trips to places like Saguaro National Park, to Tumacacri National Historic Site, to the Botanical Gardens, to the Desert Museum. Those day trips progress into one night overnight experiences to the Chiricahuas or to Mount Lemmon. And then the most involved participants from the school year activities get invited to go on the bigger trips to Sedona and Flagstaff in the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. What role do cameras play in what you're doing? Photography is a linchpin of, of what we're doing. Uh, cameras slow the participants down. It encourages them to stop and look at things they wouldn't typically take the time to stop and look at. It's really a safety net for a lot of our participants who are going out there and experiencing the outdoors for the first time. Can you tell us about a situation where you were able to document something with the camera that you thought was really special? You can go first, Adolfo. Beautiful landscape and, like, sunset pictures that we were able to take. And, like, normally I wouldn't, like, remember a specific sunset. But these I were able to take pictures and trace them back to, like, a website. I was able to see them again. And when you got back, were you anxious to share those pictures with your family and friends? Yes. I had, like, beautiful pictures. Yeah, great. Fantastic. And Yohavid, what about you? Did you like to take pictures before you tried this program? Yes, I always took pictures with my mom's phones. Me and my brothers usually go outside or go on our roof and take pictures of sunsets and the mountains. What about some of the special photos you were able to take when you were in the wild? For me, we got to take pictures of snakes 
and we took pictures of beautiful flowers we don't har- we hardly see around our neighborhoods. Did you get some training in how to use the cameras? Yes, we did. They taught us how to like not shake the cameras as much and not let it be blurry. We also learned how to zoom in and zoom out sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, Brett, what kind of journey creatively do you see these kids go on uh, when you're taking them out on these expeditions? You know, I think the first thing is just kind of opening up the door for them to explore and find the things that interest them. Whether we're someplace like the Grand Canyon or a local park like Agua Caliente or even in uh, the green space around one of the clubhouses, there are interesting things that the students can find and use as, as a subject of their artwork. Um, so I think for me that's one of the most interesting aspects of, of the program is kind of watching the, watching the kids over the course of the program to see what they find interesting to photograph and how their photography evolves over the course of the program. Um, trying new perspectives, getting down low, doing bug's eye view, bird's eye view, playing around with composition, learning about exposure, kind of progressing through our curriculum and trying new things and just in- improving their, the artistic side of what they're doing while they're learning about the places they're exploring. I gather that when you're going off on these trips, you're going with kids that you already pretty much know from the Boys and Girls Clubs, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so you already had friends in your group before you got out there. But do you think that maybe sharing these experiences made you better friends? Um, I find them different, and, like, when I go out with them, with my other friends, like, they're not as interested in, like, nature and, like, taking pictures as my Parks and Focus friends would. Seeing them, I know, like, I could talk to them about, like, other stuff. And you like looking at your friends' photos? Do you think that sometimes you get ideas when you see stuff that they photographed? Yeah, like my friend Jose, like, we would take the same kind of pictures sometimes. In one of our best pictures that they printed out and, like, they posted, it was, like, of a lizard, both of them of a lizard. Mm -hmm. I think I might have seen those photos. They're really good, yeah. And you have it, what about you? Sharing your photos and looking at your friends' photos, does that give you ideas, help to kind of like motivate you to take more pictures? Yes, because usually at school, my friends don't really um, have an interest on taking photos. They mostly have an interest on taking selfies. But when I'm in Parts and Focus, we always take pictures of nature and sometimes of each other like doing poses on a tree or something Mm -hmm. and we have fun and we don't really talk about school we mostly talk about nature brett muter what can you tell me about the inspiration that really lies behind park and focus how do you think that the originators of this program would feel about where it's gone today This program was set up to honor uh, really the legacy of Stuart Udall, who was a champion for the environment and for our public lands. Reaching the 20-year mark of this program is really special, and this 20-year partnership with the Boys and Girls Club is incredibly special. And the program has evolved quite a bit over the past two decades. So I I would hope that we're making Stuart Udall proud. My guests were Yohevid, age 10, and Adolfo, age 15, with Brett Muter, a program manager for the Stuart L. Udall Parks and Focus program. You can see the kids' photographs on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. This region's starring role in the history of astronomy makes it a logical place to hold an annual event that pays tribute to the final frontier. 
Last July, the ninth annual Space Fest focused on NASA and the now 50-year-old story of the Apollo space program. Tony Perkins interviewed an Apollo team member whose name isn't listed in as many history books as the astronauts, even though she played an important part in some unforgettable history. The year was 1959. Researchers were busy turning science fiction into fact. Dee O'Hara was an Air Force nurse stationed near Cape Canaveral, Florida, when the center commander asked her to participate in a new project. She would work with NASA's Mercury 7 astronauts, preparing them for the United States' first manned flights into space. In the early days, we had no idea what the effects of weightlessness, prolonged weightlessness, if you will, was going to affect the body. There wasn't, I don't think, great concern, but mainly uh, what were the effects of weightlessness on the cardiovascular system and uh, blood flow, and, and were they going to be able to eat and swallow, basic things like that. And I, I think those were the main concerns. This Project Mercury candidate is preparing for stress. The weight of eight gravities will thrust upon him as he rides the human centrifuge. But what about the concern of the astronauts themselves? O'Hara notes the Mercury pioneers were all test pilots worried about achieving each mission's goals, finding out if someone could live and work in space. Perhaps maybe a hint of apprehension because of sitting on top of a, of a rocket, uh, that would kind of scare the bejesus out of most people. O'Hara says the movie, The Right Stuff, took dramatic license about all the poking and prodding medical staffers put the astronauts through. But she maintains the filmmakers got one thing exactly right. They're test pilots and they're used to facing danger and, and problems and that sort of thing. So those of us on the ground were more concerned uh, than they were. But with each flight, you learn that, uh, gee, weightlessness didn't really affect that particular system, or uh, they certainly did okay doing this and that. They were able to eat. They were able to swallow and void and do all of those things. And so, again, it was just each mission you gained that much more confidence. By the time Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed Apollo 11 on the moon in 1969, NASA was confident about long-duration flights into space. But two missions later and Apollo astronauts' ambitions were stopped before launch because of an earthbound worry, exposure to the measles. Dee O'Hara remembers NASA's alarm when flight doctors diagnosed pilot Ken Mattingly only days before the Apollo 13 flight. They could not risk uh, having him be in behind the moon, if you will, which, given the incubation period, of 21 days, uh, he would have been behind the moon, and then to have him come down with either a fever or just feeling uh, terrible. As dramatized in the movie Apollo 13, NASA officials decided to call up a backup crew member, Jack Swigert, to take Mattingly's place. Actor Tom Hanks portrayed Mission Commander Jim Lovell. He's a fine pilot, but when was the last time he was in a simulator? I'm sorry, Jim, I understand how you feel. Now, we can do one of two things here. We can either scrub Mattingly and go with Swigert, or we can bump all three of you to a later mission. Jim, if you hold out for Ken, you will not be on Apollo 13. It's your decision. Apollo 13 flew with Swigert on board and almost turned into a disaster because of a spacecraft explosion. 
Mattingly worked with ground crew members to bring the astronauts home safely. Then, as O'Hara recalls, Mattingly received better news. He was assigned to another mission, Apollo 16, and would have his chance to go to the moon after all. He really lucked out, and uh, at the time it didn't seem like that, but he really, uh, he really lucked out and, and, and had a great mission, uh, given all the heartbreak of uh, being removed from, from uh, 13. O'Hara worked on every NASA manned spaceflight mission for 25 years, including the first space shuttle mission. She says the lessons learned by the early astronauts related directly to life on Earth Maintaining good health allows you to perform at your peak, no matter if you're making your daily commute to work or guiding a spacecraft among the stars. I'm Tony Perkins for Arizona Spotlight. Tony Perkins interviewed NASA researcher and nurse Dee O'Hara. Join PBS 6 on Wednesday, December 26th for NOVA, Apollo's Daring Mission, as many members of the Apollo space program tell about the first mission to circumnavigate the moon, 50 years ago this month. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. In this essay, She reveals a journey she had to pursue because of her health and how it made her reconsider the signals that our culture sends out about motherhood. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor to the show, and her commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. From period to postpartum, how my hysterectomy changed me. This is The Word, and I'm Adiba Nelson. It was my choice. Mostly. Well, my body decided for me. You see, when your uterus decides to double in size in one year for no apparent reason, it's clearly time for an exit strategy. My strategy of choice, with my doctor's approval and advice, hysterectomy. Sure, it was a bittersweet choice. I was both elated and devastated at the same time. I mean... No more monthly visits from the Red Death, no more cramps, no more slap-your-face-off moons, and no more frantic runs to Walgreens for emergency pregnancy tests. Yes, honey. You see, a year ago, my husband and I were entertaining the idea of having a baby. We met with an obstetrician and a geneticist because when you're 40 and trying to do this, it is not as easy as, oops, he sneezed and I got pregnant. We had to plan this out. You know, make sure all the systems were functioning as they should be. It seemed like we were good to go until the geneticist hit us with the news that some of our inherited genes might not play well together and a pregnancy could produce a medically fragile child. Being that we already have a child with special needs, we knew that that was more than we can handle. But we didn't give up hope. We considered in vitro, which sadly also came with the cherry picking of embryos. But that didn't feel right. We considered throwing caution to the wind and rolling the dice, but that felt too risky. So in the end, we accepted that a biological baby wasn't in our cards. Well, 
he accepted it. I thought I accepted it. I scheduled the hysterectomy and bragged to all of my girlfriends that I would no longer be joining them on the PMS train to hell. I gave away all of my feminine hygiene products and chuckled at those Tampax commercials, stating to no one in particular that I would now always be a girl on the go. And then one day, the reality of what was about to happen to my body hit me. I was no longer going to be able to carry a baby. I would not be able to give my daughter a sibling, and I would not experience postpartum life without depression. Not even if I wanted to. Not even if I dared to. Let me tell you something, folks. That is a razor-sharp pill to swallow. The depression set in, though I hid it from most everyone I knew, except for my best friend. She would get text messages from me, in all caps, exclaiming that I was screaming mad at my television because I'd just seen a Pampers commercial where a woman gave birth and the doctor placed the freshly born baby on her chest. Or a phone call from me, sobbing in the Target parking lot because I'd made the horrible mistake of walking past the baby clothes and saw a mom cooing over her newborn child. I was hurt. I was angry. And if I'm going to be 100% honest with you, months after my hysterectomy, I still am. Yes, like approximately 20% of women in this country, I have miscarried. But this felt different. This felt much more out of my control, like an actual robbing and violation of my body. I have heard it said that you never forget the babies you lost. But I wonder if other women are like me and will never forget the baby that wasn't there. I can say with certainty that I will never, ever miss my period. And I will never watch that Pampers commercial again. But with just as much certainty, I can also say that I will forever miss what I never had, even if it was my choice to never have it. You can find much more of Adiba Nelson online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. The beats were by Q and DJ Benby. The holidays symbol many things to many people. This week, the campus began to quiet down at the University of Arizona in anticipation of the holiday closure. AZPM reporter Emma Gibson and I took a walk to talk with people about traditions, old and new. Yeah, sure. My name is Cody, and uh, I'm a graduate student at the U of A, and I had more of a non-traditional upbringing, so really didn't celebrate the holidays too much. It was more just uh, a time when family came together, but not really because of the holidays. So now uh, I pretty much just use it as an occasion to get together with friends, which I guess is not really traditional either. Well, my name is Nick Marulli. I work here at the University of Arizona. I'm from Maryland, and I came out here a couple of years ago, and I love it. Like most Americans, I think the tree, you know, buying the tree, decorating the tree. When I was little, my mom would buy me like little Hot Wheels and Matchbox cars and wrap them and put them in the tree. I always loved that. That was fun. But to this day, I think the tree is the most Christmas thing to me. And for some reason, maybe because I have a sweet tooth, cookies, Christmas cookies, it's always your excuse. I can eat more of them because it's Christmas. (laughs) And I'll always do that. (laughs) 
My name is Yan. I'm from China. I moved to Tucson four years ago. The biggest holiday in China is the Lunar New Year, and uh, all the people get together and eat a lot of food. Why would we get a new clothes? That's the most uh, exciting part for us, new clothes and a lot of dessert. Another one is lucky money from the older people, like my parents, my aunts, uncles, grandparents. So we can spend whatever we want. Um, hi, my name is Dua. I'm a biology major at the University of Arizona. I just transferred here from Indiana. Um, it's been a great semester so far, and my favorite holiday tradition on New Year's Eve, I like to watch Forrest Gump, just because it's one of my favorite movies, and it helps me reflect on how my year has been, and where I was before, and where I am now, and I don't know, I just, I, I feel like it puts me in a really happy place and I usually order pizza and just stay in because I'm not a big drinker or a big partier. I'm probably going to be doing it with my kids at one point. Yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, my name is Jeremiah Paskey-Wood and I'm a librarian at Main Library on campus at the University of Arizona. Since I married my wife, whose family is all from Missouri, they're the ultimate Christmas traditionalists. They always celebrate Christmas by um, opening presents on Christmas Eve and having soup for some reason, which is... <laughs> That's what they do. So it's been interesting kind of having to navigate sort of coming from a family that doesn't really do that a lot to a family that is all about the Christmas traditions. My name is Holly Halstead and I'm a journalism student here at the U of A. Every Christmas Eve my family and I go to Mass together and then after Mass we have dinner together and then we walk through Winter Haven and it's just a really nice tradition. We look at all the lights and just spend time together. My name is Jack McDonald. We used to celebrate Christmas a lot more when our children were young. It was a delight. They'd come downstairs, the whole show, Santa Claus. Um, they are grown. We have moved. They live in different areas. So we find that we, we our time around the holidays is better spent uh, with our children at another time when it's less hectic and we can see them and it's, in a, you know, so that's pretty much where. Is that right, hon? Sounds good to me. I'm Liz McDonald, and um, well, that's pretty much how it is for us. But I, I do. I mean, I love the general season, but not necessarily having to go all in. <laughs> so a lot of times we just go, um, if, especially if our kids are around, we'll just hang out together and maybe on Christmas Day go outside and grab a hike or something, and uh, just be happy that it's Christmas. <laughs> My name is Angel Marcus, and I am a senior here at the U of A. With Christmas being, I guess, the big one right now, the main holiday tradition, I would say, is like staying up all night Christmas Eve with all my family in Mexico, and we just kind of hang out, and then it'll usually be a thing of getting like fireworks and blowing them up. Thanks to some folks who were on the campus of the University of Arizona who took time to talk with us about the holidays. And thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Spotlight will be off next week, but will return on January 3rd. Happy holidays. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.